Hey, everybody. Dr. Simon, the stories we live by. And uh, I want to uh, follow up last week's show uh, where I had the uh, pleasure and privilege of sharing the show with my colleague and friend, uh, Lou Wynn, Dr. Lou Wynn, uh, in which we discussed the um, problem of trying to end gun violence by uh, blaming or uh, trying to find out who's mentally ill and who could uh, be using a gun because of their mental illness and preventing guns from falling into the hands of the mentally ill. And I think we made a pretty good case for the fact that this is impossible. Uh, But I wanted to do something other than that today, although before I go on with the today's show, which is uh, rejecting the myth of mental illness, whether or not it's related to guns or anything else, I wanted to read a letter that I got uh, sent to me, forwarded to me by Dr. Wynn from uh, Jim Gottstein, who is a wonderful individual who uh, is an attorney. I believe he is in Alaska. Uh, He was in Alaska the last time I was uh, in in contact with him, uh, who uh, advocates for the rights of those uh, labeled mentally ill. And I'll come back to this business of advocating for the rights of the mentally ill at the end of the show when I demonstrate that there really is no such thing as mental illness or mental disorders except as moral judgments and very dangerous, pernicious labels. And therefore, the individual who was so labeled is nothing more or less than a citizen who should be treated the same as any other citizen. That is, if they commit a crime and they're found guilty, they should be punished uh, if, in fact, uh, we want to uh, treat the mental illness, whether it ex- exists or not. It should be done while they're in prison and uh, being punished for the crime. Um, so that, uh, I mean, one of the things I, I could do a show on, but I'm not going to do it now, is just how our legal system is screwed up by <clears throat> this idea that people have illnesses or disorders which uh, take the responsibility for bad things that they might do out of their hands. So uh, there's a letter here that I have. I want to read the salient parts of this letter, which was um, addressed to the Honorable Joseph Biden, uh, Vice President of the United States, regarding gun violence task force. Uh, Dear Mr. Vice President, in the wake of the unimaginable tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School, there has been an understandable assumption that increased use of mental health services and a mental registry is part of the solution. Understandable, but wrong. The reaction is wrong because of two basic facts. One, there is no reliable way to predict who will commit such a terrible act. And two, the pervasive use of psychiatric drugs which is the mainstay of mental health treatment, increases rather than decreases extreme violence. With respect to the former, there is a Washington Post article attached that goes through violence research and includes the following observations. One, there is no instrument that's specifically useful or validated for identifying potential school shooters or mass murderers. Two, the best-known attempt to measure violence in mental patients found that mental illness by itself didn't predict an above-average risk of being violent. Three, studies have shown that psychiatrists' accuracy in identifying patients who had become violent 
was slightly better than chance. And finally, the presence of a mental disorder is only a small contributor to risk outweighed by other factors such as age, previous violent acts, alcohol use, impulsivity, gang membership, and lack of family support. And by the end of this show, I hope to show you that the presence of a mental disorder is no contributor because it doesn't exist except as a moral judgment of behavior that is made after the fact that some kind of violent or bad act or some kind of unwanted behavior has been performed. There is no way to predict the behavior from the diagnosis of mental illness because there is no such thing. Finally, with respect to, two, the propensity of psychiatric uh, drugs to cause violence, attached as a statement on the connection between psychotropic drugs and mass murder, recently issued by the International Society for Ethical Psychiatry and Psychiatry, um, demonstrating the clear link between psychiatric drugs and violence. Uh, I used to belong to this organization uh, about five, six years ago. In fact, in 2004, 2005, uh, I organized their international conference. Only then it was called the International Center for the Study of Psycholo Psychiatry and Psychology. And there was a break in the group, uh, which I won't go into at all because it does, it's not relevant. Uh, and so I'm very familiar with this material and have presented it a number of times on my own blog and in my own writing. One, Christopher Pittman was on antidepressants when he killed his grandparents. Two, Eric Harris, one of the gunmen in the Columbine school shooting, was taking Luvox, and Dylan Klebold, his partner, had taken Zoloft and Paxil. And as I said last week in the show with uh, my friend Lou, um, one of the victims is suing the drug company, one of the drug companies, uh, for putting his friend on a drug when he believed that uh, Klebold really had no great propensity to commit such violence except for the fact that he was on that drug. Uh, Doug Williams, who killed five and wounded nine of his fellow Lockheed Martin employees, was on Zoloft and Selexa. Michael McDermott was on three antidepressants. I can't imagine how many, how depressed he had to be to be put on three when he fired off 37 rounds and killed seven of his employees, fellow employees in the Massachusetts Wakefield Massacre. Kip Kinkle was on Prozac when he killed his parents and then killed two children and wounded 25 at a, new new, a nearby school. In 14 recent school shoots, the acts were committed by persons taking or withdrawing from psychiatric drugs, resulting in over 100 wounded and 58 killed. In other school shootings, information about the school shooter's prescription drug use and other medical history were kept from the public records. And again, I said last week, uh, this young man uh, who committed these terrible, monstrous crimes um, in the elementary school uh, in Connecticut, uh, I would like to know uh, all about him, uh, including his relationship with his mother and uh, just what psychiatric treatment and drugs he had had, which may have been in part the cause of this behavior rather than anything that might have been used to prevent it. So, I'm going to leave this for another time. Anybody who would like to call in and discuss this, uh, I will do a little bit about it. But really what I want to do today is to go through the argument uh, of why there is no such thing as mental illness. But more importantly, 
if we destroy, if you're happy destroying the argument that there's mental illness or mental disorders, then we have to ask, what are they? And if we give up using these terms, where are we? Because so much of the story in the United States that explains unwanted, difficult behavior, uh, behavior that is disturbed and disturbing, uh, involves the mental health notion that these people have some kind of a mental illness or disorder, uh, and that this has a biological basis, and that the treatment of this disorder most effectively is carried out with some kind of chemical intervention, some kind of drug treatment. So uh, let me just quickly review what I said last week about why mental illness and disorders are a myth. Why they have nothing to do with medicine at all, uh, and that they're simply uh, based on behavior because they're diagnosed by behavior. And I had read for you the definition in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that these are behaviors uh, that are uh, diagnosed because they're disturbing to someone, either the individual who's behaving them uh, in, in these behaviors, uh, or by somebody who lives with or somebody who's in the court system or members of society at large. An individual who behaves in certain ways, uh, which are unwanted behaviors that otherwise can't be explained. Now, I should add here that if the behavior cause is a crime, then the mental illness explanation very often is put second to the fact that the individual is a criminal and therefore, has, is a, as a criminal, has committed criminal acts. And I'm going to show you how this all goes around in a circle that makes absolutely no sense once it's analyzed, uh, uh, as I will do with you. Secondly, there are no medical tests, no biological tests at all to diagnose any mental illness or mental disorder out of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the Bible of the psychiatrist and runs uh, the basis for being paid by insurance companies that are medical insurance companies. I mean, that's a whole other story, how we got ourselves involved in, in uh, not being able to treat individuals unless they have this pretend medical diagnosis which in fact is not a medical diagnosis since we're talking about behavior that is disturbing in some way, either to the individual or to those around them, uh, rather than there being any medical test whatsoever. There are none. And for those of you who are listening to me and getting upset by this, you are taking perhaps an antidepressant because as uh, I learned when I was in graduate school, depression is sort of the common cold of psychiatry, and it is very easy for human beings to become depressed. Uh, maybe another week I will give a discussion on anxiety and depression, which are the two big mainstays of making uh, diagnoses for fun and profit. Um, but depression, uh, which feels very bad, has no medical basis, and none of you who have, are taking this drug ever had any kind of medical test what you told the doctors who interviewed you, 
uh, and the diagnosis that was forthcoming is that you felt uh, that you couldn't enjoy your life, that you were sad, that either you were sleeping too much or sleeping too little, either you had lost your appetite or you were loading up on food that was not good for you, um, that you wanted to die, that you were thinking of suicide, a whole variety of things, uh, statements about your behavior, your attitude, and your mood, none of which has any proof that there's anything biological uh, at its basis. Okay? So, there is no consistent proof of biological causes, especially those that might be markers. There are no markers. Nobody can say, uh, as with diabetes, which is often used as uh, uh, a kind of analog uh, for explaining why mental illnesses and disorders, the hundreds of them, really do have some kind of basis in biology. Hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, there is no evidence that you could point to anything like blood sugar or a decrease in the volume of, of uh, the chemical produced by the pancreas, um, uh, uh, insulin, uh, in any of these individuals. If they have diabetes, is not only can you measure it, it's predictable in terms of making statements about what might happen in terms of heart disease, blindness, uh, loss of limbs because of uh, uh, wounds that don't heal properly. Uh, these are things that are predictable and come from markers associated with the medical judgment uh, that has to do, and I'll explain that in a little bit, um, medical judgment that we call diabetes. Um, these illnesses or disorders are treated, in most cases, by non-medical personnel. There are more psychologists than psychiatrists and more social workers and psychiatric nurses who have been licensed to deal with these problems than psychiatrists. And while none of them uh, can prescribe medication, uh, they are licensed by all 50 states in one way or another to treat anyone, including the most serious of these diagnoses, such as schizophrenia or major depressive disorder or bipolar or any of the other, uh, uh, what I will show you, what I believe to be moral judgments um, that have nothing to do with medicine. And that's part of the proof. And finally, if in fact any of these diagnoses would be shown to be <clears throat> caused by, predictably caused by a biological factor, they would no longer be mental illnesses or mental disorders. They would be medical illnesses and medical disorders. They would be medical syndromes, and they would not be treated by any non-medical person. Uh, and if some non-medical person did it, they could end up in jail and losing their license. Uh, so, I, I think to me this is compelling evidence that there's no such thing as a biological basis for any unwanted behavior. So now let's talk about what these things really are, and then we can talk about an alternative view to trying to use the term mental illness or disorder to predict any behavior, whether it's violent behavior or disobedient behavior in children or uh, suicidal behavior or individuals who eat too much or eat too little uh, or smoke uh, dope or do anything that is a behavior that is seen by the psychiatric community, the mental health community, as destructive or dangerous to the individual.
Again, if anybody would like to call in and join this conversation, uh, you can call 646-716-7756. That's 646-716-7756. Okay. So, if they're not disorders of some kind, then what are they? And in order to me to, to, to make a case for what I believe these things really are, these terms really are, uh, I have to go back and be a little professorial. Please, if you're listening, this is not the point to hang up. Try to follow through. This is a, not a very complicated set of arguments. Uh, because if you do, then in the final phase of the show where I try to talk about how you can change your own life story for the better, including uh, never being caught in the snare of the mental health system unless you really want to, and then know what you're doing so that you could find proper help rather than psychiatric or psychological harm, which unfortunately uh, is so often the case. Um, so follow this with me. There's a wonderful physicist philosopher of the early part of the 20th century named Niels Bohr, who said you can judge something or you can explain something, but not at the same time. Judge something or explain something, but not at the same time. Now, what we human beings do, and we do it all the time, and I'm no different than you, although I do it much less now towards myself and others because I'm aware of the argument I'm about to tell you. I don't always act it out, but I'm aware always in the back of my mind and often in the front of my mind, uh, not to use a moral judgment as if it were an explanation. What we do is we do this all the time. So let me give you a couple of examples that have nothing to do with psychiatry, okay? We're in a restaurant and we notice that a fellow by the name of Sam at the next table gets up and doesn't leave a tip for the waitress. Do we have any idea what his motive was or why he didn't leave the, the tip? What's very easy for us to do and what we often do is say, boy, is Sam a stingy so-and-so. He didn't leave a tip, so he's stingy. Why didn't he leave the tip? Because he's stingy. Now reflect on this a second, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, my friends. You've just gone around in a circle. He wouldn't have been called stingy if he had left the tip, right? On the other hand, we now call him stingy because he didn't leave the tip and now explain the not leaving the tip by calling him stingy. Isn't that good? Okay, another example. Another example. Um, let me think of a good example. A child doesn't listen to his parents. He argues with them. He doesn't carry out his chores. His parents are at wit's end. And because he doesn't listen to his parents, because he opposes his parents, we call him in psychiatric terms an oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional defiant disorder. He has a disorder. Why does he have a disorder? Because he opposes authority and doesn't listen to his parents or perhaps his teachers. Hmm. 
Now, why doesn't he listen to his teachers and his parents? Because he's an oppositional defiant disorder. No different than our poor friend Sam who didn't leave a tip. We've just gone around in a circle. There's no logic here. We are like the giant yutz bird in South America, which has only one flight when it jumps from the mountains of the Andes. Because one wing is longer than the other, it flies around for a while in ever-diminishing concentric circles till it disappears up its own butt. That's the yutz bird. And we do the same thing over and over. Somebody cuts us off on the road. We say, what a schmuck. Of course, when you're on the road and road rage sets in, it's not more, it's a lot more than a schmuck. That guy or that woman, well, actually, if it's a woman, she's a bitch. But he's a schmuck. Why is he a schmuck? Because he cut us off. Do we have any idea what really went on? No. Because he's a schmuck, he cut us off. And he cut us off, so he's a schmuck. We've gone around in a circle. I can do this with you hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Now let's look at what an alternative would be. We go over to Sam, who didn't leave the tip, and we say to him, can I talk to you please? You didn't leave the waitress a tip. Can you tell me your reasons for not giving the waitress a tip? What can Sam tell us? Sam can say to us, oh, I didn't like the service. Oh, that's my sister. I don't have to give her a tip. I help support her. Oh, I gave all of my money this morning to charity, and I don't have enough to pay the tip, to leave a tip. At this point, we might even say, gee, Sam isn't stingy. He's generous. Generous has no more meaning than stingy. He's generous because he gave money to charity. He gave money to charity because he's generous? No. There is a motive. There is a context. There is a history to all of these things. Let me go for a second to the oppositional defiant disorder child, a child who opposes authority because he has a mental disorder known as oppositional defiant disorder. If we ask him what's going on, he might tell us, his parents are not consistent. He doesn't like listening to his parents because the things they tell him to do and not do, they do just the opposite of what they're telling him. Right? Point something interesting out about the oppositional defiant disorder diagnosis. The psychiatrists in the DSM write that very often <laughs> this youngster that we're saying has a mental disorder, doesn't show the disorder in the interview with the psychiatrist. It says that. What could that possibly mean? If I have diabetes and I go to my doctor, is it possible that at the moment he takes my blood, I don't have high blood sugar? Well, unless I took insulin or something else that lowered it, my blood sugar will be what my blood sugar is before I went in the office and after. So what's going on with our youngster who behaves in a perfectly appropriate way with a psychiatrist? Maybe the answer is he's no dope, this kid. He knows who he can get away with his behavior. He knows who properly disciplines or who he should be afraid of and worried about in terms of their response to him. 
If the psychiatrist shows the same inability to discipline or inconsistency or hypocrisy as the parents do, then maybe, maybe he'll start becoming oppositional and defiant of the parent, of, of the psychiatrist. It's very interesting here. Bring this into adulthood, and what you have is a psychopath. Uh, all of our founding fathers who rebelled against the rule of England would either be oppositional defiant disorders or conduct disorders or psychopaths by modern psychiatry. And they would have been treated. Of course, the treatment would have been a rope around the neck uh, and hanging until death. Uh, but, well, maybe not. Maybe if it was today, they would be drugged into insensibility so they stop rejecting the, the uh, superior belief of the authority and, and uh, ceased being oppositional and defiant and rebellious. Actually, if you think about this, if you're rebellious to your religion, then you are a heretic or an apostate. If you are rebellious to your country, you're a traitor. If you're rebellious to your parents and a psychiatrist looks exactly at the same behavior, then you have a psychiatric diagnosis and illness. But it makes no sense. If we now recognize these things are not disorders or illnesses that predict behavior, but that the behavior comes first, the behavior shows itself, the diagnosis is made based upon the presence of the unwanted behavior, then what we have is not anything medical but a judgment. And let me talk for a moment about judgments. If an x-ray shows that I have a break in my bone, that's a description, and I'm going to talk for a moment about the difference between descriptions and judgments. If the doctor says, look right here, there's a break in the bone, you have a broken leg that needs to be fixed, that's a medical diagnosis. If my uh, blood sugar level shows itself at 150 or 175, if my blood pressure is 200 over 110, uh, then I have a medical problem. And the judgment, high blood pressure, diabetes, is medical in nature. But if we judge behavior, it's moral judgment. It can be nothing else. It is moral or ethical behavior, a moral or ethical judgment. And that's what the entire DSM and what most of us do in our daily discourse. We call people a name based upon how they behave towards us or others, how they demonstrated some unwanted behavior. We give it a, a name, and we use the name now to explain and predict the behavior. And our predictions sometimes are good because behavior sometimes is consistent, and sometimes it's not. But what we haven't done is provide any kind of explanation at all for the behavior. And only if we understand the reason for a behavior in its context can we really be effective in making predictions and I believe ultimately changing and preventing the behavior. That, that is disturbing to us. What do you do instead? Instead of judging, 
And you can judge, but not use the judgment as a description. You have to describe. And the description something of something is, what did I see? What did I hear? What did I smell? What did I taste? What did I feel? What did I see a person do? What did I hear a person say? In other words, we talk about our sense experience of something that's going on around us. I don't think that's very complicated. Sam did not leave a tip for the waitress. Indisputable. But what does it mean? By itself, a description carries no moral weight. Description of behavior carries no moral weight. It carries no value of good or bad. If a doctor says to me, and it's been said to me, I have high blood pressure, it carries an enormous medical weight. Because I know, unless I get my blood pressure under control, I could die. I could have a stroke. Worse than die. I could be paralyzed. I could lose all of the things in life that I love and enjoy. I could end up in one of the nursing homes that I work in uh, and, and exist rather than live and have no ability on my own and no help by anyone else to end my life and end my suffering, if I so choose. So, a description carries no weight. If I say Barbara has brown hair and brown eyes uh, and uh, a, a thin waist and a bust that's 36 inches around and hips that are 35 inches around and legs that go on from here to tomorrow, that's a description. It carries no weight. But if I say she is beautiful, then the term beautiful carries weight. Because if I say to somebody, you are beautiful, it means very much different to them than if I say, boy, are you ugly. Great scene in an old movie called Marty with Ernest Borgnine, where he meets a young lady who's as lonely as he is. He's a, he's a middle-aged butcher. Uh, it was a perfect role for Ernest Borgnine, if anybody can remember what he looked like. Short, stocky, not very handsome. And he looks at this girl as he's dancing with her. He says, you know, you're not such a dog like you think you are. And she actually doesn't slap him in the face because she takes it as the compliment from a kind of a guy who really doesn't know or have sophistication to make the right kind of, of compliment. But she takes it for what it is, which is that something he, he's looking at he likes. It carries weight. It carries value. When I say that somebody has a mental disorder, it carries no different than calling somebody a schmuck. No different. It's dressed up. It's dressed up to act as if it has a real value and real meaning when all it is is a moral label about some behavior that a person exhibits that is unwanted and shouldn't be. And I have no idea why they have behaved this way, especially if I now say the behavior is a function of the disorder that causes the behavior. I've gone around in a circle like the Yutzbird. My head is now stuck up my own ass. 
And I have no ability to understand why this person is behaving as they are. Now, this was of great importance to me initially as a psychologist because I figured out, and I learned early, you're not supposed to judge your patients as a psychologist because if you judge them, they either leave the therapy situation or they clam up and you don't learn from them the history that led to these behaviors. And by the way, I should add something here. To under, somebody philosopher said to understand all is to forgive all. And I'm not arguing that we shouldn't judge behavior as good or bad. The young man who took a gun and, and slaughtered 20 innocent school children is, in my judgment, a monster. The problem is I don't understand why he did it, and most of us don't understand. And so we call him mentally ill, and it creates the illusion that because he was mentally ill, he did this. But if he had not done this, he never would have been labeled mentally ill. I would like to know what his relationship was with his mother, who had all of these guns in the house. I really would, because sometimes relationships within families really are illuminating, disturbing, and explain all manner of behavior. Now, not condone it. Not condone it. Not produce an explanation that says, this poor man was a victim. And no different than the victim of the children that he slaughtered. He may have been a victim, but he was responsible for what he did. And this is, again, one of the horrors of this mental illness notion. What it suggests is that there is nobody responsible for their behavior. They're poor victims of an illness. Even when we find out that their family life was terrible, we say, look, it led to a mental illness, and now they're not responsible for what they have done. If we look at the parents who we may be angry at, we may judge, we say, no, no, they had bad parents, they had a bad upbringing, and therefore they were also victims. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all victims. In one way or another, life has been unfair to all of us. All of us engage in behaviors that we shouldn't engage in. All of us may be sorry for many of the things we've done, but we did them. And regardless of the reasons we did them, if we are to be seen as human beings, and if we are to be seen as moral human beings, we really have to accept responsibility for what we've done. Um, I was watching, I don't know if anybody has seen uh, a show earlier this week, uh, Pierce Morgan, who's on CNN, interviewed some uh, radio jockey, a violent, angry man who screamed at him for a half an hour that if you come and try to take away our guns, uh, it'll be the revolution of 1776 again. You will not take our guns. This individual has no compassion for the people who died. I don't know why. He is angry. He's potentially violent. He has 50 guns of his own. He's willing to shoot anybody who says you can't have or shouldn't have those guns. All of this, all of this he is not responsible for. And 
when calls occurred afterwards, it was agreed he was mentally disturbed or mentally ill. He had a mental disorder. Well, I said, fine, let's call anybody like him mentally ill. The problem is that I am now being hypocritical and being hung by my own petard because it explains nothing. It explains nothing. In order to explain human behavior, we need another set of metaphors. We need another story. And what I want to finish up today is with that story and what you do and what you can do, I believe, to transform your own lives. Because this has been of enormous help to me. We need a framework to understand why people behave as they do. Okay? Now, let me say that my own theory about human behavior, which I've written up in several books, the last of which, and let me give you the name. The problem is that I went to a publisher that made it as an academic book, and, and um, it tends to be expensive, but I'm very proud of it. It's called Psychology, Psychotherapy, Psychoanalysis, and the Politics of Human Relationships. My first book is called Psychotherapy. It's published by uh, Prager. The other book is also Prager. But they brought it out as a paperback. I'm not sure it's still available as a paperback. But that would be a very inexpensive way to understand my ideas. And I wrote Psychotherapy with therapy in quotes. Psychotherapy in quotes. I like the word psychotherapy. However, I don't believe that we're doing real therapy. I believe we're doing a metaphorical therapy, uh, uh, not literal therapy, because we're not dealing with literal but metaphorical illnesses. We're dealing with moral judgments that act as if they're medical illnesses. And in my own work, I come up with another theory of human behavior that doesn't start or even include the idea that mental illnesses or, moral, or, or these moral labels can be used to explain anything, especially complex behaviors that we're disturbed by. What every human act is, I believe, and I take this from uh, the work of a de wonderful developmental psychologist by the name of Jean Piaget, is every one of our behaviors is an adaptation. And what's an adaptation? He says it is a behavior that attempts to assimilate things from the environment, take them in, if you will, and forces an accommodation. That is, the individual has to figure out how to change the behavior in order to successfully assimilate. So one way we grow and develop through the process of assimilation and accommodation now, I think this is too abstract. So what I came up with is the following. I think every moment of our life, we are confronted with a problem. How do I get enough to eat? How do I keep myself safe? How do I cross a street without being run over? How do I find love? How do I consummate sex that I enjoy? How do I understand human behavior? How do I figure out how to do a blog on blog talk radio? This can go on endlessly. At any given moment, we are trying to solve a problem. Our attempt to solve the problem 
are the way in which we learn and increase our skills. So, if I cross the street wrong and run over by a car, then I failed to solve the problem. I failed in my adaptation. I failed. I'm dead. So I now need, and this gets into a, a, an intelligence that allows me to figure out that the cars coming at me can hit me, or I now need adults who teach me how to cross the street. Adults are very important. Teachers are very important as we grow and learn to solve problems. How do I get a date? Right? How do I solve the social problems of being socially successful? Much more complex and far-reaching than crossing the street, even though death may not be the, the, the answer to my failing to solve the problems of finding a date. How do I get love? How do I get love from a parent who doesn't love me? Now, these are things that any psychologist and those of you in, in, in land, uh, uh, in, in, uh, out there in, in cyberspace, uh, struggle with. We all struggle with these things. Some of us have adults in our life and people in our life who make it easy for us to find love. They discipline us and they show us the right way to behave according to their standards where we will be loved, where we will be treated with kindness, with dignity and respect. Things that I believe we need. Our problems are the solution to things we need. What are some of the things I believe we need? Uh, and here I use in part the, the uh, work of Abraham Maslow. Wonderful theorist who had a hierarchy of needs. And again, I could go on and criticize the notion of a higher set of needs and a lower set of needs. But let me go through what he believed were a set of needs that I think are universal. And the way we solve them, I think, or fail to solve them, determines the kind of person that we are going to be. One, biological needs. We have to have enough to eat. We have to be able to sleep where it's warm. We have to do these things. I mean, we have a basic biology that has to be treated in a certain way. And I believe it's every human being's right to have enough to eat. And that anybody who deprives people of hunger because they see them as bad or not human, uh, they have dehumanized them with their moral labels so that they're not struggling human beings, I think is wrong. Uh, I can see the enormous political uh, implications come out from this statement. Second, we have to feel safe. We have to feel safe. We have to feel this way. To feel fear, to walk around in fear is intolerable. So we have a problem to feel safe. I think that more and more people in this country don't feel safe. And as I said last week, there's a kind of circular reasoning. They don't feel safe in part because there are so many guns. There are so much death being meted out by government, by police, that they feel the only way they can remain safe is to have a semi-automatic weapon with 100 bullets in it that could be fired in a couple of seconds. I think this is a lousy solution to feeling safe. I think the only way to feel genuinely safe is if nobody had a gun. 
but I don't know how to make that happen. It's just my belief system. But people have to feel safe. When a child at night is tucked in and told all is right with the world and kissed and hugged, the look on that child's face is just unbelievably wonderful because that child will now go to sleep. How many people do I know who can't sleep? The reason they can't sleep and they have to take sleeping pills is not because there's something wrong with them and not because there's something wrong with their brain. It's because there are problems, important problems in their life that they don't know how to solve and they can't go to sleep. It is absolutely against all of our biological nature to go to sleep when there's danger around or when there are serious problems left to be solved. How do you go to sleep and make yourself that vulnerable if in fact you're that dangerous, in that kind of danger. Next, I think all human beings need to belong and to feel loved and to love. I know how corny this is to talk in this day and age about love, but I think a, lo a life without love is an intolerable life. And I think so much of the grandiosity we see in, in politicians, in public people, of individuals who are desperate to be loved on a large scale. I remember, interestingly, uh, Sally Field, who is one of my favorite actresses, who won two Oscars in short time of sequence many years ago. One was for Sally Field, and uh, it was for uh, Norma Ray, uh, which was one of my favorite movies, and I forget the other one, but she stood on the platform of a cheering crowd and said, you love me, you really love me. She meant it. Well, I don't think they loved her. I think they loved Norma Ray. I think they loved the characters. But if this need to be loved was so powerful, and I think it's powerful in all of us. When someone close to us says, I love you, and they mean it, the feeling is we know, because I believe this is what love is, they care more about that, us, us and our needs than their own, or at least as much. I have three children and six grandchildren, and in my heart, I know I would die rather than let anything really bad happen to any of them, if in fact my death would prevent some evil befalling them. Now, if in fact something would happen and I wouldn't behave that way, I'm not sure the rest of my life would be worth living, because that would create a moral image of myself that would be intolerable. And I think most of you listening to this would make, make sense too. It makes complete sense. If somebody can walk away from their child and go drinking, uh, as one patient finally said to me many years ago, I realize now that he loved his alcohol more than he loved me. It was a painful realization. But he stopped judging himself as a failure. He stopped calling himself names Stop blaming himself for what his father's behavior was, that there was something wrong with him as a human being that his father didn't love him and drank. Children often, and I'll have another show that I'm going to do this whole notion of, 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 of uh, responsibility, what we're responsible for, what we may not be responsible for. Uh, young children very often see themselves uh, as causing things magically that they're not responsible for, that they couldn't possibly be responsible for. 
a patient of mine who was told all the time that she was a bad girl and then read in the, and the mother said to her, you're the cause of all things bad. And then in 1945, read the newspaper about the Holocaust and came to the conclusion that she, as the cause of all things bad, was the cause of the Holocaust. At that moment, her life changed and the diagnoses that followed uh, uh, was severe and the treatment was terrible punishment that in no way interfered or changed with the adaptation which was her solution to a problem of I'm bad and I cause these things. I'm not good and I have to be good. I think that we have to have needs, we all have needs, uh, that we are have dignity, that we have some pride. I'm not talking about false pride. I'm talking about that we see ourselves as worthy of being alive. And when we can't solve the, these problems related to being worthy, there were all kinds of endless distortions in our personality that end up hurting others, causing pain to ourselves, and if seen by the psychiatrist or the psychologist, are judged with using words such as mental illness or disorder. Finally, he used the term self-actualization. I believe every human being is unique. And on the one hand, we have to be part of humanity. We have to be part of society. But we have something unique to say, something only we can create and bring into the world. Hopefully, with love, with dignity, with a sense of satisfaction, what we bring into the world is good for others and good for ourselves. If not, we shoot children in the school, we run, try to rule the entire universe, we cause the death of others and ultimately ourselves. Now, again, I admit this is sketchy. However, I believe that everything that we cause, call mental illness, is behavior that is unwanted, behavior that is judged to be wrong with the pretense that it has something to do with medicine that is, in fact, somebody's adaptation to life. Their attempt, their, the best they could do under given circumstances of their life, their social surroundings, their place in the world, their place in the social hierarchy to satisfy the needs for food, for water, for safety, for love, for belongingness, for pride, and to be a creative, worthwhile, effective, competent human being. So, did I say a lot today? I'm very happy with this broadcast. I'm sorry that nobody called in. I have eight minutes left. If there is, in fact, anybody listening, I would love to hear from them, 646-716-7756. If nobody does call, I'm going to end the show. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are downloading and coming to my show at this point, much more than any time in the past. Uh, and now I have been on this week, this is my third or fourth week, where I've been at 8 o'clock on Wednesday night. Next week at 8 o'clock on Wednesday night, 
I'm going to do another show and on atheism. Uh, I want to talk about the tyranny created by uh, people who believe that uh, they believe in a God and can do almost anything to those uh, who believe either differently uh, or don't believe in God. And I think the time has come uh, for those of us who are non-believers, uh, not necessarily not religious, but non-believers, um, and I'll differentiate between what I think is religious belief and, and theistic belief, or belief in a, in, a, in a power, a dominant power. Um, so that'll be next week. Uh, I hope that you will turn in, tune on, turn in, turn on and drop in uh, next week. Uh, I'm sorry I'm not hearing from anybody tonight. Uh, but I'm going to pursue this. I, I uh, used to do it 4 o'clock on a, an irregular basis, and then I accepted that nobody would turn call. But uh, I have seven minutes left, and I'm going to sit for a couple of minutes and see whether or not anybody would like to call in and participate in the discussion. Because the moment you stop judging yourself and describing yourself and stop judging others and start describing, you understand yourself and you understand others, and life becomes a very different process. Right? The minute you stop calling yourself crazy and stupid and weird and unlovable and all of the other things, that lead to that represent a failure to satisfy some of the basic human needs and then preclude your ever satisfying those needs life is intolerable when you stop doing that um, you know what i uh lou win has written this book a lo lovely little book healing the hurting soul and let me leave you with one final thought if you do f go for therapy Ask the therapist, can they help you without calling you bad names in the DSM? In other words, can they work with you to help you understand yourself better? Because good therapy does that without referring to you or writing notes that you have a mental disturbance. Can they do this without judging you? The problem with this, of course, is that most of us are trained to get the diagnosis and we really don't fully understand exactly what I've been talking about tonight. The second thing is if you're going to pay for this by health insurance, you have to be diagnosed. You have to be called a bad name that poses as this uh, supposed uh, medical issue because otherwise medical insurance doesn't pay for it. So we're all kind of trapped in a box by this. But even with that, if you can find somebody who you can uh, turn on to this show or understand the show enough to recognize that to be judged is not to be understood, to judge yourself is not to understand yourself, to be understood is to be described, to be experienced by somebody who experiences you as you do experience yourself, by somebody who understands what your history is in descriptive terms, what happened, what it feels like to be you, what it feels like to be me, 
what it feels like to you to be with me and what it feels like for me to be with you. If we can deal in those terms, wonderful things happen. If not, get the hell out of there because you've probably been judged enough in your life and judge yourself enough, which is the cause of your depression and the cause of your craziness. Uh, and I will talk again in future episodes uh, about that. So I don't think anybody's going to call me in the next three minutes. Uh, I saw my chiropractor today. I have some serious arthritis in my neck, and every once in a while I do something uh, that I shouldn't do. Most of the time I have no idea what it is that I've done. And my neck is so stiff and my shoulders are so painful that I don't know what to do with myself. I'm feeling a little better tonight. Uh, he usually does help me. Uh, but I've had enough of the phone in my ear tonight. Actually, I think by next week, maybe I'll get a headphone since I've been doing this regularly and staying online for an hour. Okay, folks. Have a good week. For those of you who hear this, uh, send me a message uh, that uh, you liked it or disliked it. I really do love feedback. I do. Uh, so, good night. Take care. Talk to you next week.